Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The power of a biblical whatever. Learning to think and live in light of what is true in all of its transcendent and personal fullness, God is in this. To be a person who thinks about whatever is honorable, it's the kind of attitude that doesn't get rattled easily. A person who is dignified, thoughtful, wise, and discerning before you act. Because non-reactionary thinkers tend to make the best leaders, spouses, parents, disciples, and citizens. And he wants this in and from you. Why don't you all bow with me and let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your goodness, for your grace, your mercy, your truth. As we're going to see today, Father, we're grateful for your revelation to us, both in the written word as well as in the living word of Jesus Christ. So I pray, God, that as we gather here in this campus to worship you and then at our other venues and campuses, as one congregation now, we turn to your word in talking about this extremely important issue of our attitude. So bless us, God, as we do so now. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. Well, as long as I can remember, I have always been the kind of person who has been very, very respectful of justice. I don't know whether it was because of an overactive conscience as a kid or the fact that my dad was an attorney or what it is, but I have always been aware of right and wrong and had a great deal of respect for the right, get this, way before I even became a Christian at the age of 17 or 18 years old. And this doesn't mean that when I was growing up I never got in trouble or that I never bucked the system. Of course I did, but when I did, I readily admitted this thing called justice and I accepted, for the most part, the consequences of my actions. As many of you know, I come from a small town outside of Cleveland called Chagrin Falls. If you ever visited Chagrin, I was raised there as a child. It's a beautiful little town of about 5,000 people going through a valley. And in the middle of the town where the river goes through this town, there is the Chagrin Falls. You can see a picture of it on your monitors. And it's one of the most beautiful falls on the east side of Cleveland. And so I grew up uh, obviously swimming in the Chagrin River and jumping off of this waterfall on a regular basis. We did that a lot as kids. You can see on your monitors there, there's a spot where the water doesn't go through on a nice summer day. And so we'd stand there and we'd jump or dive into about 15 feet of water at the bottom. But here was the problem with it. It was actually a municipal ordinance that you could not jump off the waterfall. It wasn't a felony, mind you. It wasn't even a misdemeanor, but it was against the rules. And so it would not be unusual at all that we'd be falls jumping and a policeman would be on the bridge above there kind of licking ice cream cone as they did back then watching us. And then he would just say, you know, move it on and tell us to move on. And that was the extent of my felonious career when I was a, a young teenager. Uh, 
what's also interesting about Chagrin Falls is that uh, back in the 1970s and 80s, there was a guy from Chagrin Falls who graduated from the high school there named Ted Batchelor. Ted went off to Hollywood. He tried to make it as a stuntman. Uh, I don't think did very well, but actually holds the Guinness World Book of Record for lighting himself on fire and running. I guess he ran for two minutes and 38 seconds while on fire, and that's his claim to fame. And what he also would do is for about a 10-year period of time, back in the 70s and 80s, right when he got out of high school, once a year he would light himself on fire and jump off the falls. True story. In fact, you can see pictures here of Ted doing that. And this was a huge event for our little town. The camera crews for Fox News and CBS and ABC would come and there'd be huge crowds to watch Ted jump off the falls once a year. But if you remember, this was a municipal ordinance that you couldn't do it, so it was also fun to watch three or four policemen, that's about all we had, uh, there at the, at the river when Ted got out, uh, arrest him, put him in handcuffs, and take him three blocks to the police station. And then eventually they, they'd let him go. Uh, one particular year when I was in high school, uh, I was waiting to see Ted jump off the falls and light himself on fire, and one of the camera people from one of the big news stations asked me if I would walk up to the top of the falls and, and just simply stand there so they could get the focus and all that right. And so my friends thought that was really cool, and I walked to the top of the falls, and I decided that I'd do something fun for the crowd. I decided I'd give them sort of a pre-event and that I would jump off the falls. So I did. And I'd done that a thousand times, and when I swam to the shore, there was Captain Voss from the Chagrin Falls Police Department, and he looked at me and he said, that was dumb. He said, you know you shouldn't be doing that, especially on a night like tonight. And then he looked at me and said, I want you to sit on this rock, and I want you to not move. I'm going to be back for you later. About five minutes later, all my friends found me, and they, they said to me what happened, and I told them what happened, and to a friend, they said, run. <laughs> And you got to remember, this is a small town, so I said, I, I can't run. They know where I live. They know me. Plus, if you remember earlier, I said I've always had this keen sense of justice, and when authority told me to do something, I was raised to do it. And so I sat there, and, and this is where the story kind of gets, I think, very funny, is that I sat there, I watched Ted jump off the falls, I watched him get arrested, and then I sat there, and nobody came back for me. And I didn't know what to do. I'm sitting on this rock. It's getting dark. All my friends are gone. The camera crews are gone. People are kind of looking at me as they're walking away. And I thought, do I leave? Do I stay? He said, do not move. And after about an hour, when nobody else was around, I stood up. I expected SWAT to come or something. I stood up, and I walked home. And I never heard anything more about it. But that happened 30 some odd years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Why? Because I have this keen sense of justice that when I'm told to do something, generally speaking, the elders would say not always, but generally speaking, I, I do. You see, here's the deal. I think that justice is kind of hardwired into our DNA by God. I, I really do. I, I think it's core to how human beings function in this fallen world of ours, and as we're going to see today as we go along, it's core to how God functions as well. And it's even supposed to be core to our attitude. It's true. Uh, when the Bible gives us God's top eight attitudes that he wants in us, which I think we find here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, it should be no surprise 
that in the middle of this listing is this thing called justice. That we are to think with justice in mind. We're to have an attitude that desires the right and wants to see wrongs righted, that desires to see good prevail and the bad not prevail. Justice, I believe, is core to any healthy attitude. But here's the deal, guys. As good as this sounds, and it is good, there's a lot more to justice than most people realize. I mean, let me ask you, if you and I have a cup of coffee and we start to talk about justice, do you know what questions I would ask you? I'd say this, how do we know what is right and wrong? Who decides that? And what should we do about the wrong around us? How hard should we try? And what should we do when we can't fix the wrongs around us? When do we quit? And when does forgiveness and mercy come in when you and I are in the middle of our cause of justice? And who decides when that time should be? You see, most of us are pro-justice. I mean, we could tell stories like I did growing up where we kind of warmed up to this thing called justice. But the reality is, is that most of us haven't really thought all that deep about all the ins and outs of justice. We don't have answers to the questions that I just asked. And so we're like a person running in place. We're all fired up about being just in our culture today, but we really haven't thought deep enough about what's involved in being a person who has as part of his attitude or her attitude justice. And so as we continue our series here on attitude at our church, I wanna add some meat to the bones of justice today. And I wanna do so by just sharing with you two rather simple, albeit profound and rather straightforward, but you're gonna find almost seemingly contradictory truisms that come from the Bible about justice. And so here's the first one, let's start simple, and that is that the Bible tells us we must discern, assess, and respond to the injustices around us. That's where the Bible begins. That if you are a follower of God, whether Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jehovah, or of Jesus in the New Testament, if you call yourself a follower of God as he declares himself in his word, the Bible says that you are now called in your attitude to discern assess and respond to any known injustices that you see in the world around you. So this is what our passage today, I think in great part, is getting at. It says in Philippians 4.8, finally brothers, whatever is, say it with me, just think about these things. I need you to focus on that word just here. This will not surprise you. This word, when it was used 2,000 years ago, as we see here in the Bible, was a very common word in the Greek and Roman world that Jesus and the apostles found themselves in. This is the Greek word dikaios, and it was used all the time by the Greeks and the Romans to refer to that which is morally right, that which is correct, that which is good. And yet, like most secular cultures, and the Greco-Roman world was fairly secular, that have trouble agreeing on a universal, unified standard to know what is good and right, the Greeks pretty much defined dikaios as that which conforms to custom, their customs, and that which observes legal norms, their legal norms. In other words, the standard for right or wrong, don't miss this, this will be very important for us as we go along. The standard for right and wrong in the Greek world and Roman world that Jesus found himself in was a culturally entrenched, culturally defined standard 
And so justice was pretty much relative for them back then, pretty much confined to what they thought was right and what they thought was wrong. To be sure, Plato used this word dikaios to refer to an inner order, the order of the mind as it itself discerns what is right and wrong. And that's how most secular cultures, by the way, and even ours in many ways today, define and utilize justice. It's justice as they see it, as they define it, as they view it. But as you can imagine, when the biblical writers picked up this word and used it quite often, and they did, they used it in a subtly different but profound way. Uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses this word over 400 times to refer to God's justice and even the injustices in this world. The New Testament, originally written primarily in Greek, uses this word dikaios 80 times, almost 80 times. And though this word, get this, still means in the Bible that which is good, right, and correct, what the Bible obviously does with this word is root it deeply in God, his revelation, his character, and even his law. In other words, the Bible added meat and substance to this idea of justice by giving us a standard rooted in God of what is just and what is not just. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Uh, when it comes to God's character, just think of God in his being, just who he is. Did you know that the Bible defines him as just? In Psalm 116, verse 5, it says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. It's the word dikaios in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. In Revelation 16, 5 in the New Testament, it says, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just, dikaios, are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments. So rooted in God's character, his absolute, never-changing, Trinitarian character is this idea of justice. Justice emanates from God. Why? Because he can be no other. He is just, and he is right. But let me blow you away even some more. Following the uses of this word dikaios in the New Testament and the Bible, we realize further that God has revealed to us a standard of right and wrong, and it's found in the law and in God's word. So Romans 7 verse 12 says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, here it is, and righteous, dikaios, and good. Romans 2.13 says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So how do you and I know what is right and what is wrong? What's the standard as far as God sees it for justice? God in his character and his law, and the Bible even affirms his entire word, and then the word even tells us that when we are walking with God, our consciences actually can become our hearts, a good barometer for justice. So don't miss this, guys. God's revelation in his law, in his word, even written on our hearts, becomes for us the standard of justice, a standard for right and wrong. And so I love how Bishop Desmond Tutu once put it while speaking at a conference in London in 2008. In light of his experiences with all the injustice of apartheid, this is good. He said this, there is nothing more radical, nothing more revolutionary, nothing more subversive against injustice and oppression than the Bible. He says, if you want to keep people subjugated, the last thing you place in their hands is a Bible. 
Why? Because it's our call to justice, because it tells us that justice is rooted in the very character of God. As well, the Bible is our standard of justice contained in God's law and in his revelation. And so here's the deal. When we then now travel back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, and it tells us that whatever is just, that these should be the things that consume our thinking, it's not kidding it now hopefully becomes more pregnant with meaning for you because it, because it becomes a key part of our attitude, our worldview. Now you see why I say we need to discern and assess and respond to injustices around us using God's word as our barometer and his character and even our consciences. That's why God put us here, to be the kind of people who make a dent in this fallen world and make a difference in the fabric of our culture through being men and women who think justice. Whatever is just is a part of our attitude. And I'm telling you, when you do this, you're now becoming in great part the salt and light that Jesus wanted us to be. People take notice of that, and they're going to ask you, what has gotten into you? And you're going to say, the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is helping me have the kind of attitude that God wants me to have. Or as Mark Twain put it so humorously, he said, do the right thing. It will gratify some people and astonish the rest. <laughs> and so here's the challenge I have before you today as I see it. If this is true, what we're looking at here right now, if it's true that God wants justice to be on our daily radar, if anybody who claims to know and follow him then it must follow that every follower of Jesus should have at least one area of injustice at any one time that we are regularly involved in. Wouldn't that just make sense? I mean, if this is one of our key attitudes in life, then how in the world could any of us at any given time say, well, it's just not my gig. It's just not my thing. I mean, I'm a grace guy, or, or I'm a this, or I'm a that, but you know what, justice, I mean, that just takes a lot of work, and I might be seen as kind of radical. No, the Bible says that it's part of our daily attitude that what makes us an unstoppable force of love is the fact that we care about the injustices around us. And so all of us, and my challenge to you today is going to be that all of us need to have at least one area at any given time that we can point to and say, I'm working on that. And you know what's fascinating? It is that the good news is, is that Christianity, both historically and modern day, has had an amazing track record, more so than the media would ever give credit to, at being on the front lines of trying to right so many of the wrongs in this fallen world. You need to hear that today. A few years ago, when the media was doing one of its regular bashings of hypocritical evangelical Christians, uh, Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times, let me pause there, the New York Times, not Christianity Today magazine or, or Moody Monthly, but the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof had had enough of it. And in writing one of his regular op-ed pieces, uh, he said this after noting that indeed there are hypocritical evangelical Christians. Uh, look up here in the monitors and what he said. He said, but in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many others. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities, mostly church-related. More important, go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet 
are evangelical Christians who truly live their faith. He says, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way, and it sickens me to see their faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. And I want to stand up and applaud as well. You got guys like Wilbur Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. and people who historically have just taken a stand against justice and they've done it in the name of Jesus. And so don't ever let anybody tell you that Christians just talk a big game and never deliver. I'm not saying we should get prideful about this, but because historically our, our, our forefathers and mothers have understood that justice is key to how we function as Christians, they've not been afraid to enter into the culture around them and be a man and be a woman of justice. And so the simple question I have for you today is this, and some of you aren't going to like it, but if you're not having coffee, this is what I ask you. What's yours? What is your area of injustice that's on your radar right now? When you think to yourself on a daily basis, as you should, whatever is just, I'm going to think about these things. What is yours? What has God put upon your heart? What right or wrong are you trying to right? I love this quote by Ambrose from the fourth century. This is, I mean, this is just amazing. He says, there is your brother naked and crying and you stand confused over the choice of an attractive floor covering. When I read that in my study recently, I thought that could be written in Scottsdale in the 21st century, couldn't it? But why is that quote so gritty? It's because times never change. We've always struggled in a fallen world, even as followers of Jesus, of asking ourselves, am I going to follow God in having areas of justice that I commit my very life to? And again, I just want to say, because I want to be really clear here, the Bible is the wonderful standard that tells us what causes and what issues we should be involved in. In other words, if you can find it in this book, if it's a part of God's standard of justice, then just about anything goes. And he says, dream, run wild at what I might have you do. Or to put it more crassly, and I know I'll get a couple emails over this one, but I just don't care today. Uh, the Bible helps us distinguish between babies and baby seals. Amen? It does. I mean, I, yeah, some of you like that. You justice people like that. The reality is, is that since Roe versus Wade, there have been 50 million babies in America that have lost their very lives. 50 million human beings, not fetuses, not the preborn, but human beings. And we still live in a world that cares more at times about baby seals than we do about babies. And you see, this is where God's word is so helpful. It helps us to distinguish between that. So I gotta tell you, I was encouraged this week when I uh, just took a look at some of the things that I know SBC is doing. If you look up here on the screen, I'm gonna show you a chart that I put together. I'm not going to read the list of our partners there, but you can see them there. That's just a sampling of some of the formal partners we have here in Phoenix and around the world to help combat injustice. But look at that center list. These are just some of the issues right now through our church and through our partnerships that we, are, our people, you guys, are involved in. Poverty, hunger, medical and health care issues, housing for those in need. Native American Indians through chief ministries, street kids, orphans, prison, prisoners, adoption and foster care, unwed mothers, battered women, refugees. I mean, those are just some of the core injustice issues 
that over the last 50 years, Scottsdale Bible Church has been involved in. Some of you are newer here. You don't understand. One of the things I love about our church, and I can't take credit for this because I've been here just a few years, but way before I got to this church, this church was missional before missional was vogue. Uh, This church has always said that if we're going to care about our community, we need to care about the justice and injustice issues in our community. And we have a wonderful, rich history here. Uh, That list on your right is just a list of, I call it, other SBC passions. These are people who have come up to me over the years since I've been here and say, why don't we have a ministry for this? I have a passion for this. I have people regularly say, why aren't we more involved in sex trafficking? Uh, We have a woman in our church here, Marsha, that has a nonprofit called Be Kind that just helps kids in the secular school system develop character that's more in line with being kind to other people. Uh, We have people in our church here that are very, very, very involved in third world poverty, immigration, what I call strangers in the land, seniors and aging, single parents, religious liberty, racial injustice, women's rights, political issues. And that's just what I could think of on the top of my head as I was finishing this stuff on Friday. I'm saying this to encourage you guys. One of the things I love about our church is that our church has always said, whatever is just, that needs to be part of our attitude. And here's the deal, and I need to make this very clear because we have so many different passions going on in this church. We need to respect each other's passions and involvement here, amen? Because what might be your passion of justice might not be somebody else's. In fact, you might even say, why are you getting so excited about that? And again, I'll go back to the Word of God. If it's something contained as a value in the Word of God, then we need to respect that. And again, I know how some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, aren't baby seals of value in the Bible? And the reality is, is that if you can show me that, and maybe somebody could make a good argument for that, then yes, I will respect that in you. Uh, When I came here uh, eight years ago, I was being interviewed uh, just about eight years ago last summer uh, for the senior pastor here, and I can remember having a really uh, delicate but meaningful conversation with our own Wayne Grudem, who is on our elder council here. He's a a professor at Phoenix Seminary, a a very rich, deep thinker, uh, an author. And Wayne, if you know him, is very involved politically. He's written books on God and politics. He's very involved in in politics locally and abroad and has some very, very strong opinions on that. And as I was being interviewed and talking with Wayne at one point, I said to him, because I thought I wanted to be candid, I said, well, you know, I'm really not nearly as politically involved or even motivated as you are, and I hope that's okay. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He looked at me and said, well... He said, I hear that, but I have one question back for you. (laughs) He said, "Uh, do you have, as our senior pastor, enough room to support and allow and even champion the various areas of passion that some of us do have? And I thought that was a great question. And I said, obviously I do. I mean, my passion of justice doesn't have to be necessarily yours. My challenge to each one of us here today is to have at least one area in your life that God has put on your heart that you're saying, I want to think whatever is just here and do my part. So if you were to turn the tables on me today and say, well, Jamie, what's yours? Well, I've already told you guys that. I served for a few years on St. Mary's Food Bank, and I'm still involved in working with the hunger issue. Because God has placed that upon my heart, and certainly the Bible affirms that when we see somebody hungry and in need, we need to do something about that. 
And so that's just by example of the list or, or the thing that God has me involved in. And here's what I started dreaming about today, and I'm just so, or this week, and I'm so excited about this, that when I look at that list there of historically or right now what our church is doing, I can't wait to see what it's going to look like in 10 years from now. Amen? That is a new generation of people rise up through our Compelled by Grace vision and making lots of room for more families and even younger families in our church. I can't wait to see what whatever is just means for them. The only caveat is we got to have it in our daily mindset, in the DNA of how we think. So the first thing we need to realize is that when God tells us to think justice, we need to discern, assess, and respond to the injustices around us. And we should each have at least one area that we're involved with at any one time. God wants us to right wrongs, and it's a key part of our daily attitude. Now, as I said earlier, there are actually two rather straightforward, though seemingly contradictory, biblical truisms about justice. We just saw the first one, that about righting wrong, wrongs, and in the few minutes we have remaining, I want to introduce you to the second one, but it is so very important, and here it is, and that is that as we think justice, we need to remember that God's justice includes grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Simply put, when it comes to God's justice, here's what the Lord does with us, and this is so amazing but challenging, and that is that he tells us not to simply right wrongs, but to make wrongs right through forgiveness, grace, and mercy. I, I want to show you what I mean. When God thinks about justice and you, in other words, when he thinks about justice and us as individuals and even humanity before him, here is his starting place, and it's kind of uncomfortable. It's Romans 3.10. He says, there is no one righteous, dikaios, no, not one. In other words, the starting place for God's discussion with his creation when it comes to righteousness and justice is that you guys aren't that we have all fallen short, that everybody is in the same camp, and that all of us are separated from God by, from birth, and that because of this, we are facing an eternity without him if something isn't done about this. And before you start to argue, God says this is fair and right, it is just, dikaios, because our sin separates us from a holy God, and when he rightly judges us, we fall very short. And this is the eternal predicament that all of humanity is in. And so obviously, this is where Jesus comes in. This is where the gospel is applied. Look at what Romans 3 will go on to say in verses 21 and 22. It says, but now the righteousness, the justice of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. So don't miss this, guys. It's through faith in Jesus and the forgiveness and righteousness that comes through him and his death on a cross, that this is now imputed to us. That's the word theologians use. It's credited to our account so that even though we are still not wholly good, even though we still fall short, God says, I'm going to make you right in my eyes through forgiveness. Uh, but it's a righteousness that comes through the justice of God meted out in Jesus and through our faith in him. 
So again, God knowing that we aren't going to ever be wholly perfect this side of heaven, decided to go with justice still, but it's a justice, don't miss this, that comes at the cost of Jesus, who bore our sins, and through faith in him, it's appropriated into our lives. And so here's the result. This is so important to see and grasp. Look at Romans 3.26. It says, it, the gospel of Jesus, was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, dikaios, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So get this, God is still just. Again, I said earlier, he can be no different. But it's a justice that has come about in our lives, not by righting all of our wrongs, because God isn't doing that right now. You're not doing that right now. You still fall short. But it's a justice that God applies by making us right through our faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason that this is so important here is because when you and I then go to talk about justice with the world around us, God wants you to follow suit. Amen? In other words, he don't want you just to be some hard-nosed Christian saying, well, that's not just, so off to hell you go. No, God wants you to be the kind of Christian that says, that's not just, and we got to make that right. But to the degree that we can't, or to the degree that even it falls short, I can help right a wrong here through applying forgiveness and mercy and grace. Why? Because that's exactly what God has done for you. And so here's how it might look. As you add all this up, I was thinking about this week. It really almost seems contradictory. Here's how this looks. Good. It said, when you and I think justice, God is telling us two things. He's saying he wants us to right wrongs through doing right. That's point one, obviously. We want to right wrongs through doing right. But then what he's saying here in the second truth, as you follow the word dikaios throughout the whole New Testament, is that we then make right through forgiving wrongs. And I got to tell you, this is incredibly life-changing and profound when you grab onto it. It's only when you and I are doing both of these things on a regular basis that we are tapping into what I think is true justice in the Bible that God's given us in Christ. A justice that will allow us to both right wrongs through doing right, but then also make right through forgiving wrongs, just as God has done for you and for me in Jesus. I got to confess something. I said to you guys at the beginning of the series that, uh, that one of the reasons I wanted to do the series is because God has me in a headlock in, in my attitude right now. We're bumping into where God has me in a headlock right now. Because as I said earlier, many of you see me as a grace person, but as I said earlier, I have a very high sense of justice. I mean, when I see a wrong, I don't know about you guys, but I'm offended. And when, and when I base my standards on what I believe is God's standards as found in his word, and those are transgressed, both inside and outside of our, our churches, I, I'm offended at those things, and I want to see justice happen. But if you were to ask me right at that moment when I'm offended, well, Jamie, you also need to forgive. What do you think my response is at that moment? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't respond because I feel caught. I'm, I, I'm struggling as many of you are. I'm going, well, yeah, yeah, I know. And we're to it's, it's not just. It's not just. If I forgive, it's going to let him off scot-free. And you know what logic would say? You're doggone right. Huh, funny, God did that for you, Jamie. I mean, against all the injustice of your sin, God forgave you and took the risk of setting you free, but you refuse to do that when people hurt you or when people offend you 
or when you're offended with things around you. And I got to tell you guys, that's exactly right. I wrestle with that one, especially on a personal level in my spirit. And I find that most Christians tend to be this way. Tell me if this isn't true. I I find most Christians tend to err on one side or the other of of what we're seeing here. In other words, Christians either tend to be hard-nosed, fair-minded, justice kind of people. We all, all know Christians like that. Or they tend to be soft, lovey-dovey, grace and forgiving kind of people, you know, that watch too much Oprah and things like that. And, and, and I know that was not good to say, but anyways, I, I, I'm a justice kind of guy. And, and so I, 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 I wrestle with that because I, I, I dream and I say, imagine what would happen if Christians became proficient at both. Now, here's where it gets really dicey, though. Imagine what that would look like. Here's, I wrote this down. Here's what I think it would look like. This would be a Christian who would campaign for an end to drunk driving and even for tougher laws, while at the same time forgiving drunk drivers. Wouldn't that be kind of wild? Or how about a Christian who fights for the rights of the unborn but is kind and compassionate and forgiving to anybody who's had an abortion? Or how about a Christian, this one's hot right now, who believes that marriage should be between a man and a woman, but then befriends and accepts and journeys with a gay person, loving them like Jesus just might. How about a Christian who rolls up his or her sleeves to help the poor, and instead of judging all the Scottsdale materialists, they work with all the Scottsdale materialists and help them find Jesus as they're working with the poor. Do you sense it's almost like a schizophrenic experience here? I mean, it really is. I mean, we don't tend to see Christians like that. They're either for their just cause or they're, hey, but I'd be merciful here. But rarely do the two ever come together. But that's exactly what I believe God is saying here. That we need to be the kinds of Christians who dig deep and whatever is just, doing right and forgiving wrongs simultaneously is what he wants for us. So as we go to the communion table, I want you to do two things. The first thing I want you to do is dream. Again, that's the whole beauty of these verses here. God gives you a lot of freedom. He says, whatever is just, that applies to your life. Just dream whatever, Lord, this might look like in my life. Lord, what would it look like for me to be just? Righting wrongs and forgiving wrongs at the same time. What would it mean for me? So dream for your life and for your church what this might look like. And then also I would encourage you as we go to the communion table to search your heart. As many of us know, communion and the Lord's Supper is a time for us to search our hearts. And I would ask you to ask yourself the question, has God's justice on both sides of the equation here invaded your heart and your mind to the point that doing right and forgiving wrongs ride tandem in your heart and mind at any given one time during the day. That's where God's got me, and that's a tough one. I'm going to search my heart with you guys right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that as we're seeing in this series, we can take one word and through tracing it systematically through the, 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 the wonderful scriptures you've given us, we can see how profound and pregnant it is with meaning. And Father, when it comes to justice, Lord, I got to believe that every one of us here at our venues, at our campuses, deeply desires to be a man or woman who does have justice as a key part of our attitude every day. But Lord, we're realizing it's a taller order than we think. It involves having an area that we're not afraid to move into, Lord, when it comes to righting wrongs. But then, Lord, being the kind of Christian who can switch hit really fast and forgive wrongs almost simultaneously. So God, help us to search our hearts now, to to confess to you what we need to confess, and then, Lord, also be the kind of people who desire to be the man or woman you want us to be, whatever 
is just. We will think upon these things. In Jesus' name, amen.